Good morning, Sovereign Grace. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. My name's Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Having said that, I want to welcome up our brother, Mikey Warren. Mikey has served faithfully the youth here at Sovereign Grace for many years, teaching them the Word, and we're excited to have him teach the Word to us this morning. So welcome, brother. Thank you. Well, I'm thankful to be here this morning. Blessed to be here. We will be in Psalm 54, so I know Chad walked through Psalm 55 last week, so now we're going backwards because on the schedule, this was the Psalm that I was supposed to be preaching, so if you would, turn with me to Psalm 54, and if you would, please follow along with me as I read and then open with a word of prayer. Psalm 54, to the choir master with stringed instruments... A masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, God, we pray that your spirit would be at work to open our minds, to open our hearts, to hear your word and to receive it by faith. God, that we would be drawn closer and closer to you, that our faith would increase, that our love for you would grow. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it teaches us, that it corrects us, that it rebukes us and trains us in righteousness. God, we ask your blessing upon us at this time. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Well, there's two realities that we all have in common with this psalm as believers. The first thing that we all have in common as believers with Psalm 54 is the fact that we will all experience troubles of various kinds in this life. Whether those be internal troubles, internal struggles of the soul, whether that be external struggles with other people, strife, enmity, hostility, fights, betrayal, things of that nature, external struggles. We'll experience individual struggles. We'll experience corporate struggles. We'll experience all kinds of struggles in this life. That is one thing for sure that we all have in common with David in Psalm 54. And there's another thing that we all have in common with David as believers in Psalm 54. And that is the fact that God is our deliverer. And God is the sustainer of our souls. 
See, Psalm 54 is a psalm of David, a masculine of David more specifically. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, when Russell walked through Psalm 53, he briefly described what a masculine was. It's used semi-frequently throughout the Psalter, but masculines were often used for instruction and for imparting wisdom, as well as for prayer and for congregational singing. Notice, to the choir master. And in Psalm 54 specifically, there's an accompaniment of stringed instruments in the superscript or in the subheading. So this was a psalm that was penned by David, and it was used for instruction, it was used for prayer, it was used for song. Now notice in the subheading or the superscript, we receive the occasion of the psalm. What's going on in the life of David that leads to him penning this song? It states for us that when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now, more on this later, but this comes from a couple of different scenes in the life of David, particularly in 1 Samuel 23 and 1 Samuel 26, which we'll come back to when we look at verse 3 in this psalm. But that's the occasion. That's what's going on. That's what leads David to write this psalm. Even in the midst of when that trial and when that struggle is happening or some point after. But we know that that is the reason that leads to him writing this psalm. Now what's the purpose? What's the aim? What is David hoping to communicate by his own experience, and then impart by way of instruction to those who are receiving this psalm and then gathering together to sing it. What is he hoping that they learn? The purpose of this psalm is ultimately to teach us what true faith and faithfulness looks like in the face of strife, struggles, and sufferings. And this is particularly relevant to us, just as it was um, to the original audience and recipients throughout all of church history in the Old Testament until now. Why? Because we all face struggles and sufferings of various kinds in this life. And we all recognize that we often don't handle strife and struggles all that well. That it can be very difficult to have faith in the face of suffering. Whether that be internal or external, individual or corporate. We all know that it's difficult sometimes to have faith and to be faithful during times of strife with other people. But the big idea is simply this, that true faith rests in who God is, and what God has done to deliver and sustain us. And this ultimately leads to a life of faithfulness. And we see this demonstrated in Psalm 54 in three ways. The first one, we see it in the way that David prays for deliverance. We see this demonstrated by the way David prays for deliverance. We see it secondly by the way that David presumes his deliverance. And thirdly, we see this kind of faith demonstrated in David's life by the way he praises God 
for his deliverance. So in the way he prays for deliverance, in the way he presumes or expects deliverance, and in the way he praises and exalts God for his deliverance. So with that, look with me again at verses 1 through 3. As we see David's specific plea, David's specific requests to the Lord that he makes. Verses 1 through 3, he says, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before their eyes. In verse 1, we see what the specific requests are. He prays for salvation. He prays for deliverance, for help, for rescue, for victory, for preservation. In the Old Testament, this Hebrew word is used in a variety of ways. For salvation in regards to mortal danger, which David is most especially experiencing in this context, but also it's salvation or help or deliverance from spiritual distress. It's used in both senses throughout the Old Testament. So he prays for salvation. He prays for deliverance. He prays for the Lord's help. He also prays in verse 1, we're told, for vindication. He prays that the Lord would clear his name. That the Lord would acquit him of the false charges and the false judgments that are levied against him. He prays that God would exonerate him. That God, who knows the truth, who is all righteous, that he will uphold justice. And that God would make the truth clear to David's enemies and David's judges and David's accusers. David is being accused and judged by a number of people in his life that seek his life, particularly King Saul and the many um, people who are seeking to support Saul and pursue David's life. He prays for vindication. Kids, you understand what this desire is like. You understand what the desire is like to have your name cleared, probably most specifically older siblings. If you're an older sibling, you likely know what it's like to be blamed for crimes that you did not commit. And I don't say that as an older sibling. I say that as a younger sibling who grew up pitting the blame and the faults on my older siblings, knowing that because I'm the younger, I'm probably going to get away with it only for some time. And I know that there was a very relieving feeling when my brother and sister, when they were vindicated, when the truth came out and justice was executed on their little brother for the crimes that he was seeking to pit on them. So kids, I know you know what that feeling's like and adults as well. You've been in contacts, relationships, maybe in the workplace or within your families where people are bearing false witness about you, maybe false accusations. And you feel like there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to plead your case. And David's in this position as well, and his plea is, God, save me, vindicate me. 
from these people who spread false witness, who, who bear false truth about your anointed one. He prays for vindication. He prays for salvation. Now notice the basis of his appeal. The reason why he can make this plea. Notice the basis or, or the ground. Again in verse 1, Oh God, save me by your name. Save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. The basis, the grounds for his plea for salvation and his plea for vindication is the name and the might of Almighty God. God's name. God's name highlights and points to God's character. And God's covenant relationship to his people as the basis for them approaching him at all. A couple weeks ago when Russ preached, he walked through Psalm 53 and tied it back to the story of Nabal. And there's a passage in there. 1 Samuel 25, 25. You don't need to turn there. I just want to reference it really briefly. It says something interesting in relationship to The significance of a name. 1 Samuel 25, 25. Let not the Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. As his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. If you remember Russell's sermon, Nabal means folly or foolishness. So as his name is, so he is. David appeals the basis for his prayer, the grounds of his prayer, and the name of God. The name of God. And Exodus, Exodus 34, you can turn there if you would like to follow along with me. Exodus 34, in particular, the Lord has promised to show Moses the backside of his glory. And Moses is in the cleft of the rock. And the Lord is preparing to pass before him. And verse 5 says this. Exodus 34 verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord. The Lord. Yahweh. Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. When David in Psalm 54 verse 1 pleads for salvation, he does so on the basis of God's name. God's covenant revealed name. Which includes all of these beautiful and wonderful attributes of God. That he reveals to Moses here 
in Exodus 34. It's as if David is pleading for salvation. He's pleading for salvation on the basis of God's name. And it's as if he says this, in the way Charles Spurgeon puts it, Let every one of thy divine perfections, which are blended in thy divine name, work for me. Saying, everything that you are, everything that you are, that is revealed in your divine name, may it work for me. May it lead to my salvation, my deliverance, my help, my rescue. In light of who you are, in light of what you've done, in light of my covenant relationship and standing with you as your anointed one, may that be the basis by which you come and you save me and you deliver me from my enemies. So the basis for his plea is God's name, but he also mentions God's might. God's might in Psalm 54, verse 1 as well. He says, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Now, God's might specifically refers to God's ultimate sovereign rule and judgment over man and the affairs of man. Again, David is experiencing judgment, hostility, enmity, strife. False accusation. People who are bearing false witness about him in a variety of ways. He's experiencing it from Saul. He's experiencing it from Doeg, as we saw in Psalm 52. And here from the Ziphites. But God, God ultimately is the sovereign ruler and judge over the affairs of man. He will on the basis of who he is, on the basis of his name. He will clear. He will acquit. He will exonerate King David. The truth of the matter will be made known, and God will judge David's enemies and false accusers. It doesn't matter if it's King Saul. It doesn't matter if it's Doeg or the Ziphites, God will make things right. He will. That's David's plea and that's David's appeal. Now, briefly in verse 3, I mentioned when we looked at the superscript that I would bring us back to the occasion. Why is it that David is writing this psalm? Again, whether he's writing it in the midst of all of this turmoil and distress as it's happening, or at some point after, we know that this occasion historically is what leads to him penning this psalm. Verse 3 gives us more indication of what's happening. Verse 3, he says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. He mentions strangers, ruthless men, and those who do not set God before themselves. Strangers. These would be those who are strangers or or foreigners to one's household or one's tribe. They'd be strangers to the covenant household of God. 
But these are Ziphites, as we see from the superscript, from the heading. These are Ziphites. And if you know anything about the Ziphites, or if you don't, they're Israelites. And they're of the tribe of Judah. So it would be a strange thing on paper for David to refer to the Ziphites as strangers, those who are foreign to his household or tribe, and strangers to the covenant household of God. Because what do we know about Israelites and members of the tribe of Judah? They are members of David's household and tribe and members of God's covenant household. And yet, David, in Psalm 54, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, labels these Ziphites strangers. Strangers. And ruthless. And godless. He goes on to say, Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. There's two occasions in 1 Samuel where the Ziphites are specifically mentioned as having betrayed David or turned David into Saul. Two occasions. One is 1 Samuel 23.19, which I think is where the direct quote from the superscript comes from. I'll read it briefly. 23.19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul in Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish? There's the first one. It's the first instance. And then from here, if you remember, Saul chases after David. He goes after him to seek his life. Saul would be included among this group that's referred to as ruthless men who seek his life. Saul goes after him, and what does the Lord do? The Lord spares David, and then David has the chance to take out Saul. And what does David do? He spares him. And then again in 1 Samuel 26 and verse 1, the Ziphites come again to Saul. They come to him again. And they say to Saul, is not David hiding himself in the hills? Again, they come to Saul. Second time. And David in in Psalm 54 identifies these Ziphites, these Israelites, members of the tribe of Judah, ultimately as strangers. Foreigners. Foreigners to God's covenant household. They're ruthless men. They seek his life and they're godless. They ultimately have not set the Lord before themselves. Their actions clearly in 1 Samuel validate David's words. They have rejected and stand opposed to the Lord's anointed. And therefore, they have rejected and stand opposed to the Lord himself. Brothers and sisters, David's plea here in these verses highlights the utter desperation of man. And our ultimate need, our ultimate dependency 
upon our sovereign covenant Lord in all things, especially in our salvation, our preservation, and our vindication. And this should manifest itself in the way that we pray. If there's something that we can take home by just looking at this first portion of this psalm, it should be this, that our dependency upon God, His sovereignty and His covenant faithfulness to us, our neediness should be abundantly clear and manifest in the way that we pray, individually and corporately. We are a people in great need, and we have a God who supplies and has supplied that great need. So David prays. David prays for deliverance. And this manifests and reveals and demonstrates his faith and faithfulness in the face of trials. But moving on, verses 4 and 5, the central section of the psalm, David presumes his deliverance. He presumes his deliverance. Just another demonstration of his faith and his faithfulness to the Lord. He presumes his deliverance. He expects it. He expects it in that he expects God's faithfulness to preserve his life. He expects him to preserve him. Behold, verse 4, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. God is my helper. He will answer my plea. He will answer my call. He will save me. He will deliver me. He is my God. He is my helper. He is on my side. He is on my side. David can make this claim. He can make this claim on the basis of God's character, but most specifically on the basis of David's own covenantal union with God. David recognizes and understands the identity of God. The one who he is making these appeals to. And he understands his identity before this God as his chosen one, as his anointed, as the king that was promised. He knows this. And because he understands his covenantal union with God, he can claim for himself, God is my helper. He will answer this prayer. He can come with confident expectation because he's aware of the covenant promises that have been made to him. And he trusts in them and he holds to them. God is my helper. He's also my sustainer. He's the sustainer or the upholder of my life. Now, translating this text, you can also translate it in this way, which might sound interesting. You could also translate it as the Lord is among the upholders. Of my life. We don't want to be mistaken for taking that as he's just one of many helpers, but he's among the upholders of his life. David recognizes that God's sovereign hand is at work in his life in a number of different ways through a number of different events and circumstances, including through a number of different people who have helped to preserve and uphold his life. That he recognizes, I think what he's doing here, is he is recognizing 
that those people in his life that have contributed to helping uphold him are ultimately being used by God himself. That God is among those who uphold his life and preserve him. Take, for example, Jonathan, David's close friend. Even in 1 Samuel 23, 1 Samuel 23, we were just there. 1 Samuel 23, verse 16 to 18. Again, Saul is seeking to pursue David's life. And Jonathan, Jonathan in verse 16, Saul's son rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. The Lord uses and has used in David's life a number of people and events and circumstances to be a means of upholding David's life. David understands this. And he also understands that the Lord is the sovereign one who is over all of it. Because notice what he says next in verse 4 of Psalm 54. God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Notice the word there um, in verse 4. God is my helper, the Lord. The Lord. Lord is spelled L-O-R-D. All lowercase this time. If you've seen it before in all caps, we know that that's a reference to the divine name, covenant name of God, Yahweh. When it's Lord with lowercase O-R-D, this is the Hebrew word Adonai. And the use of Adonai, what David is doing by appealing to this is he's recognizing that God is the sovereign one, Adonai, who is the chief sustainer of his life. So whether it's through people or through events or circumstances, God and His sovereignty is always at work for His glory and for His people's good. That's good news for David to hold on to and to cling to as he does. And it's good news for us to cling on to and hold to as well. He is our sovereign Lord who is at work in all things and in people and places and events, times and seasons for his glory and our ultimate good. David recognizes this. It's the basis for why he can expect deliverance and it ought to be for us as well. Not only does David expect God to be faithful to preserve him, but he also expects God to be faithful in retribution. Returning evil. In verse 5 he says, He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. He expects. He knows. That as God is faithful to his word, to his promise, 
to his covenant people, he knows and expects that the Lord will be faithful to him. To be gracious to him, to be merciful to him, to save him, to preserve him, but also as is consistent with who he is, as revealed in his word and in his divine name, he's a God of righteousness and justice. And he knows that as these enemies are surrounding him, who are bearing false witness and false testimony, standing against the Lord and his anointed, David knows that God will return justice on his enemies. Why? He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness, put an end to them. Because God is faithful. Because of who God is, what God has done, and what God will do, David knows that in accord with God's very own character and word, he will execute justice on his enemies. Brothers and sisters, you who bear his name, you who bear his name can confidently expect God's faithfulness to preserve and vindicate you because he is our God and we are his people. He will preserve you. He will save you. And he will ultimately vindicate and glorify you. Again, there's a tension that I know we are all aware of. That in this life, We will experience persecution and struggles as Christians. We will. That is a guarantee. We will. We are told that in innumerable places. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, as an example, tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be persecuted for righteousness sake. If you desire to be faithful, to live a holy life set apart unto the Lord, a godly life in Christ, you will experience persecution in some way, shape, or form. It's not an if. It is a when. It is something that we will experience in this life. We will also experience struggles of various kinds, a familiar verse to most of us, James chapter 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is a guarantee that we won't be freed from suffering and strife and struggles in this life. We will experience them. We will. If we are seeking to be faithful, if we are seeking to live godly and holy lives, we will experience persecution and suffering. But there's hope in the midst of that because just as much as we are guaranteed persecution and suffering of various kinds, we are also guaranteed preservation and vindication. We are guaranteed Preservation and vindication. 2 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it briefly. But 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8. We are afflicted in every way. But not crushed. Perplexed. 
but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We will be persecuted. We will be perplexed. We will be afflicted. But we will be preserved. We won't ultimately be crushed. We won't ultimately be led to utter despair. Just as God was faithful to David in his life to preserve, to save, to help, to rescue, to vindicate, he will do so for us as well. There's a guarantee of vindication. We don't have to take vengeance in our own hands. We're told in Romans chapter 12 what we are to do. Romans 12 verse 19. We're starting in verse 19. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This ought to be our response to the hatred that we receive. We entrust ourselves to the sovereign rule and judge. That God will execute judgment in this life or in the life to come. We know for sure we are guaranteed that in the life to come that God will judge his enemies, that they will be placed under his feet and also under our feet. In this life, there's possibility. We know that God has established governing authorities. He's established a means, a system on this earth, though corrupt at times, though inconsistent and imperfect at times. God has established for the sheer purpose of executing judgment and justice. So that even in this life, we may experience forms of vindication in the earthly and temporary matters. But we are guaranteed that the tables will turn for us and that the evil that our enemies or those who have stood against Christ and his people, it will be returned upon them for all eternity. And what's the grounds for this hope? The life, death, and resurrection of Christ, which is his vindication. Jesus is the true and better David. The Lord ultimately vindicates Christ himself. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. He willfully, he actively and passively went to the cross to bear our sins, to bear the hatred and the evil and the wickedness and the injustice of the world. He took it upon his shoulders for us. And the Lord demonstrates his vindication. His justice in the life of Christ by raising him from the dead. Validating all that he is or all that he claimed to be in his resurrection. So the grounds for our hope, our guarantee of preservation and vindication 
is ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. That is why we can pray with David. That is why we can expect, like David expects, for preservation, salvation, and ultimately vindication. Now, David concludes this psalm, verses 6 through 7. And here we see a continued demonstration of David's faith, David's faithfulness to the Lord in the way that he praises God. In the way that he praises God for his deliverance. Verse 6, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. A free will offering. This is a, a significant, voluntary offering and sacrifice in direct response to God's gracious work in someone's life. That was the common expression of gratitude when God did something in someone's life, particularly in an act of salvation, preservation from enemies, again, whether individually or corporately, they would gather together and they would put up offerings. Now, these were different from, in addition to, the regular sacrifices and offerings that were made year after year as a part of religious duties. These were, if you will, extra voluntary acts of just praise and thanks. So David expresses his praise through the giving, through the giving of sacrifice, through the giving of a voluntary offering, but he also expresses his praise and his thanks with his mouth. He says, I will give thanks. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Giving thanks is to give an expression of praise through one's voice that acknowledges and celebrates God's gracious dealings in one's life. One example of how David does that is in the penning of this very psalm. In the penning of this very psalm, he is giving thanks. He is giving praise. And he's leading others to do the very same thing. A life of thankfulness and gratitude expressed in the giving of sacrifices, giving of our lives ultimately, but also with our lips, with our voices, is expected in the Christian life. It's expected. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice three times the mentioning of thankfulness. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, to the Father, through Him. It is expected in the Christian life that we are a people who are marked with thankfulness. And if you need to be reminded of the reasons that you have to be thankful, look again here. It's Psalm 54 here. 
look again at the person and work of Christ. What he's done. What he is now doing and what he will do to save you, preserve you. Vindicate and ultimately glorify you. Brothers and sisters, the proper response to all that God has done in our salvation, in our deliverance from sin, from death, from our enemies, what he'll do in the future, the proper response is the lifting of our voices, collectively singing praises together, lifting our voices and telling other people of the wonderful works of God and in redemption and the giving of ourselves to God expressed in holy and faithful living. What does Paul tell us in Romans 12.1? In view of the mercies of God, present your lives, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. This is your spiritual worship or your rational service. This is your spiritual worship, your rational service. This is the only response, to put it another way, that makes sense, true and proper sense, to what it is that God has done in your life. To lay your life down as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. Again, there are two great realities that we all have in common in this psalm. That we will experience troubles of various kinds. And that God is our deliverer and the sustainer of our souls. So brothers and sisters, in the face of distress, in the face of strife, in the space of suffering, whatever that may be for you in this life, let us rest upon who God is and what God has done, what He's doing and what He will do to deliver and sustain us. And may these truths lead us to a life marked by thankfulness and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the grace and kindness that you've lavished upon us in your Son. God, we pray that the truths of Psalm 54 would sit and marinate in our minds and our hearts and it would lead us to express the kind of faith and faithfulness that we see in David's life. That it would shape and inform the way that we pray with neediness and dependency. God, that it would lead us to confidence and assurance in your covenant love and faithfulness toward us. And ultimately, that it would lead us to a thankful and praise-filled life. God, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name and for our sake. Amen.